wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. I, that's one of my favorites. It speaks to my heart, and I'm just thankful for him who died for me. I'm going to ask if you have your Bibles, and if not, it will be on the screen. There's just one verse that I'm going to read. That's a rarity for me, but I think it speaks volumes, and it's found in the Galatian letter Paul's writing in the sixth chapter, the 14th verse. You've uh, heard it quoted many, many times, I'm sure, but simply says, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I am crucified unto the world. Would you stand with me briefly? <clears throat> our Father, may we, as we have sung so beautifully about the cross, May we realize even in a greater depth the implications of the cross. We realize it is not only a cross of identification. Paul tells us it's a cross of internalization. Speak to us one more time. Speak to my own heart. Give me a sense of what I need to do in a greater measure than I've ever done. Make the last days of our lives be the greatest days. And may it all redound to your glory and to the advancement of your kingdom. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We just came through the Passion Week a few weeks ago. Passion Week, of course, started with the Palm Sunday and carried on through Easter Sunday. Across the years, I've done an in-depth study of that week, and I think I can tell you everything Jesus did as far as what is recorded in the Word of God in that week. It started out as a day of celebration, the Palm Sunday, when they shouted Hosanna as he walked or rode the little borrowed cold into the city of Jerusalem. It was just a few uh, days that that Hosanna would turn to crucify him. Monday was a day of conflict, and Tuesday was a day of controversy. Wednesday was a day of concealment. It's the only day in that week that nothing is recorded in Holy Writ as to what Jesus did. I believe he might have gone over to Mary Martha's and rested for what he was going to face. Thursday is the day of communion. That's the day, of course, we call it Monday Thursday on the Christian calendar when Jesus had the last Passover with his disciples. It was there that he went to Gethsemane and sweat as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It was there, of course, he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, and then he was taken captive, arrested, if you please, and early the next morning, long before it was legally right to open up in trials, they began to put him through about six mock trials. Friday was the day of crucifixion. Saturday was the day of 
confinement. He was in the tomb. Sunday was the day of conquest. Let me tell you, the only reason we can call Friday Good Friday is because of Sunday. The greatest tragedy the world ever faced turned into the greatest triumph on that Sunday when Jesus came forth from the tomb. Now Paul is writing this statement because he understood exactly what the cross really meant when he made the statement, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I'm crucified unto the world. There are a lot of things Paul could have gloried in. In fact, before his con conversion, you remember he was Saul, but he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had about 2,300 years of Jewish heritage behind him. He was an educated man. He graduated from Tarsus. He studied at the feet of the great Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and when he finally was converted, you can read it in Philippians, all of those accolades I just mentioned about him, he called it all rubbish. He counted it all but dung that he may know Christ. He came to know Christ, as you well know, on the road to Damascus. And following his conversion, they led him into Damascus, where later on Ananias came, laid hands on him. He received his sight and the Holy Spirit. And then Paul went out into the Arabian desert to prepare for the ministry that God had called him to. He was the chiefest of the apostles. He wrote 13 of the letters of the New Testament. He suffered more than any other disciple. And finally, you remember, he was beheaded in martyrdom. It was the cross where he found his deliverance from all sin. And that's why he cried, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to just share two things tonight. I want you to look at the cross of history. That's a shameful death. But I also like for you to see the cross of the heart. That speaks of a spiritual deliverance. And by the way, if we don't understand the cross of the heart, the cross of history means nothing. We may study it as an historical event. We may read about it and sing about it, but you must understand the implications of that cross in our own heart. The old hymn writer years ago said, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. I'd like for you to look at it just for a moment. <clears throat> I try to visualize much of what I read in the Bible only because I'm, I'm made that way. I don't know. And sometimes I think maybe I bore people with the imaginative. But I don't think there's anything wrong when we study this cross. It stands as a sentinel on a barren hillside. This we call the cross. It's not a polished veneered cross of fine mahogany it does not shine like marble not this cross it was made crude and rustic and the cross shows evidence as though it was hurriedly made there's questions that come to me when I study about the cross and probably you have asked pondered some of them my first question concerns the tree from whence this cross was made uh, was the tree, did it have leaves that provided shade for the sun-weary traveler of that day, that cross? 
Or did that cross grow in front of a kitchen window where a mother would watch her children play in the shadows of its branches? Did its fruits delight the taste of the hungry pilgrims that passed by and took fruit from the tree? Where did it grow? Where did this tree grow? Who laid the axe to the root of the tree and then finally trimmed off the bark and the branches to ready it to be a cross? Who was the one with the sledgehammer, drove the nails in the cross beam to make it in the shape of a cross? There's a whole lot of questions that come rolling in your mind when you begin to think about this cross and the tree. I don't know, but I want you to know that God knew. God knew the very tree they would use, cruel men would use, to take his only begotten son and hang him on the tree. Cursed is every man that hangs on a tree, and God permitted it in order to fulfill the divine plan and the divine purpose for your life and for mine. It's interesting in Genesis 3, we find it was a tree, a tree that was good for food, a tree to be desired to make one wise, that Adam and Eve partook of that became the downfall of our first parents, and as a result, spread sin and death on the whole human race. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why heaven is overshadowed with a great tree that grows on both sides of the river of life. That river clears crystal that cascades from the throne of God and the Lamb. That tree will not bear just one fruit. That tree will bear 12 manner of fruit. And the leaves of that tree will be for the healing of the nations. It just somehow seems fitting to me as sin come by way of a tree it will be defeated through the instrumentality of a tree. I think God knew that, don't you? You see, I have a great confidence in the sovereign God that I serve. In fact, I'm glad that I know that God. In the Old Testament, this cross is prefigured over and over and over again from Genesis all the way through to Malachi. If, for example, if you remember in the wilderness, that wilderness became a viper-infested place where the serpents were biting the children of Israel and they were dying like flies. And Moses petitioned God and God said, Moses, take a brazen serpent, lift it up on a pole and everyone that looks at the serpent will be healed. I think that might be where we got the hymn, look and live, my brother live. Because John, that great statement echoes through the corridor of time and John on the third chapter said, just as Moses lifted up in the, serp the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus himself said, if you remember in John chapter 12, for this cause came I unto this hour, and if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. This spoke he of the death, that he should die. In the New Testament, the cross holds center position. The cross has always been despised. You know that the Jews counted the cross a stumbling block. Literally translated, the cross was scandalous to them. 
They didn't expect Jesus to come in a lowly manger and die such an ignominious death. They were looking for the Messiah, the King, that would come and establish the Mesonetic throne of David. And they didn't understand why he came not to establish his kingdom here on earth yet, but to die. The Greeks, so-called intellectuals, thought the cross was nothing but foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, the cross. The greatest doctrines of Christianity center in and at the cross. And I might say the cross interpreted by the resurrection. Do you know I challenge you sometime, go through the Acts of the Apostles. Following the resurrection, the center of the message of the apostles, 11 different sermons, and they all did not speak of a dead God, they spoke of the living Christ. (laughs) The living Christ. By the way, folks, no other religion can testify to their God being dead and now is alive forevermore. Only the Christian religion. He lives, he lives. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my own heart. True Christianity is not only known for the intellectual content that it carries, but unlike a lot of religions, it's known for its moral demands. When you read, thou shalt and thou shalt not, I want you to note those are God's moral demands. And they cannot be just sort of discarded as though we're beyond that preacher. By the way, the Ten Commandments are just as binding today as they were when they were inscribed on the stone. God just took them off of the stone and wrote them in the heart and the minds of man. And the love of God is the desire to do what the law commands. It is simply the transcript of God's holy character. And as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy. And those moral demands are things we try to debate over, but I want you to know, because of the power of the resurrection, let me take time, because of the power of the resurrection, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, these commandments find their enablement. In other words, whatever God commands, it is necessary, it is reasonable, And it is absolutely essential because he does not command us to do anything that he will not enable us to accomplish. I'm glad to know that. I think sometimes, well, I don't know if God can expect me to live as holy as some people say I ought to live. Well, let me, you know, it's always been interesting to me. We go Easter morning and we commemorate, celebrate the risen Christ. Do you believe God, through his spirit, brought Jesus forth from the dead? Oh, yeah, I believe that. Do you believe God can deliver you from all sin? I don't know if he can do that. I'm going to tell you something, folks. If he can do the greater, he can do the lesser. And for some reason, we're willing to, we say we subscribe to the greater, but then we begin to hedge on the lesser. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that cleanses us from all sin. That blood is as powerful and efficacious tonight. It didn't get trampled in the dust. It said he made his way to heaven. He sprinkled upon the mercy seat of God in heaven. It's just as real. It's almost, I think Martin Luther said, as though Jesus died yesterday. Don't look at me like that. He will enable us to live holy and righteous all the days of our lives. 
There are many things today that are deemed legal that are not moral. Even a lot of the modern church today have put their seal of approval on things that God has condemned. And folks, one of these days, I'm not going to stand before a bishop or a district superintendent or a preacher or an evangelist. I'm going to stand before God. And I've got to be very careful because, you know, we have almost dressed sin up to make it look palatable. We don't call adultery adultery anymore. We just simply say, well, they're having an affair. We don't call homosexuality what it is. We, that's too strong. You're a homophobe if you talk like that. It's just an alternative lifestyle. We don't call killing babies murder. We just call it pro-choice. Don't look at me so strange, church. We've dressed it up. And make no mistake about it, when I said to you that seduction precedes persecution, the day will come in these so-called hate crimes when if we stand for the truth, we may have to suffer for the witness that God's called us to maintain. And by the way, we're no different than they are. They died for the faith. I wonder if you have the grace to die for the faith. I wonder if I do. I want to make sure. You know, I sat one time years ago and listened to Dr. T.W. Willingham, and he says God will be, God will be satisfied with nothing less than de uh, devotion unto death. And he spoke out of Hebrews where it says, You've not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. In other words, there were those who were complaining, thinking it was so hard to be a Christian and so tough to face a world that's no friend of God. And they were sort of struggling in their faith. And finally, he just simply said, you've got blood to shed yet. You haven't shed all your blood. Boy, that's stringent, isn't it? That's pulling the rope pretty tight. In other words, you can die for the faith. And then he looked at us. And he said, you know, everybody complained about serving God and all it cost you. By the way, he said, it didn't cost you one red cent. It didn't cost you one sleepless night. It didn't cost you one drop of blood. He paid the whole price for you and me. And then he said, I want to ask you something if you are a Christian. When you received Jesus, did you get a bargain or not? And he said, if you don't think so, you don't have to follow him. I'm not that provocative. That was Willingham, just so you know. <laughs> We're moving down a slippery slope, folks, and it's gaining momentum every day. We are witnessing in this whole radical Islamic faith, and I know that all this stuff is taboo in these days, but we're witnessing a religion that has absolutely no moral restraints. Under the guise of religion, it's almost as though, and I've tried to be a student of what I'm seeing, and I've been trying because I've always enjoyed reading the Second World War, and I don't know why, just pray for me, but Hitler absolutely intrigues me, a man who went so low. But I, 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 it's almost as though hell has been let loose on itself. I'm not sure, but what we have reached, a point of absolute evil, equal to what Hitler did in his gas chambers some years ago. And I was wrestling the other day. I read a book. A guy gave it to me, and it was an intriguing book on that whole area and I sat down and in three hours and read the entire book. It was so readable. And I used to wonder 
From whence comes this obsession of suicide bombing? I mean, to you and me, I, I hope, to you and me, that it's out of this world that a person will just strap a bomb on themselves and go blow themselves up. And so I began to read. Do you know that Adolf Hitler had a mentor who was an atheist by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche? Friedrich Nietzsche did not believe in God. Oh, by the way, just as a footnote, I don't want to forget this. He died in an insane asylum. He was an ignorant and a crazy man, Frederick Nietzsche. And I want to say that strongly. He was a crazy man. And he said, God does not exist. We are God's. We are our own creation. And when God's gone, man becomes his own creator. But a man rebuked him. And he said, be that as it may, you still have to reckon with death. Do you know what he said? Oh, absolutely overwhelmed me. He said, don't let death take you. You go to it. That way, you're not a victim. You're the victor. He did what they called deified suicide. Can I tell you, you and I have not seen the depths of a depraved heart the length that it will go. And that's why the cross is so important. For when man rejects the true and the living God, because he is a creature that must worship, and by the way, we all worship something, that man will make a God of his own. But the God that he makes will not condemn the sin that he loves. That's why the cross not only converts, that's why the cross cleanses from what we call the defiant ego, E-G-O. You know, the word flesh is used in two different ways in the word. Sometimes it speaks of this, so, uh, this soma body. But that isn't always true because in Romans, for example, in chapter 8, Jesus was looking at those in the body and said, but you're not of the flesh. That's the word sarks, which is talking about this ego this carnal, self-centered being because they had experienced this crucifixion that I'm talking about. In fact, if you want to find out, if you take the word flesh, drop the last letter and spell it backwards. S-C-L-F. Self. Ego. The big eye, if you please. That's where the cross of the heart speaks of a spiritual deliverance. If you would go to the 20th verse in the second chapter of the same letter, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet he said, not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know, I don't have time, but when he said, I'm crucified with Christ, that I is the renunciation of the self-ego. In other words, my rights to myself has died. God owns every part of me. He can do with me what he pleases. Then he said, I'm crucified with Christ, the renunciation of life, nevertheless I live. That's the realization of the true life. Not the self-centered life, but the self-conscious life. When we talk about dying to self, we're not talking about this body dying. God wants these bodies as his vessels to fill, to work through. He's talking about this self-centeredness. And then he says, not I live. Christ lives in me. 
That's the reproduction of Christ. That's the difference between merely an identification of the cross and the internalization of the cross. Have you been crucified with him? Paul testifies to it. You know, the word Calvary is mentioned only one time in the New Testament. Does that surprise you? All the songs we sing about Calvary, all the sermons we preach about Calvary. It's only one time in Luke 23 where it says when they came to the place called Calvary that they crucified him. Now three other times it's translated skull. The word Calvary in the Latin is skull. The place of the skull. The place was carved out on the face of Mother Earth by the wrinkling hand of time in the shape of a skull, and there is where they crucified Jesus. And as he was hanging on that cross, suspended between heaven and earth with a convert on one side who turned to him in his last hours and a criminal on the other side who rejected him, no ceiling over his head but a frowning providence and no floor under his feet but a rocky world and no walls about him but the darkness of a midnight hour that closed in at high noon. There they hung him. And when Jesus gave up the spirit and said it is finished, he transformed the place of the skull into the place of salvation. Aren't you thankful? The old symbol of Christianity, as you know, is a fish. You see on behind automobiles sometimes, not vehicles, they have a little fish. That was the symbol of Christianity in the Old Testament. Of course, oftentimes they knew that if they were caught worshiping, they would have to suffer persecution. So they'd be sitting around and they'd draw a fish in the dirt. And if the other guy drew a fish in the dirt, they knew that they were like faith and they'd go somewhere and worship together. I don't know why it was a fish. I've asked myself questions about that. Maybe one of the reasons I have a slow time getting through my Bible every year is because I ask too many questions. But I wondered, why did they use the figure of a fish? Uh, was it because the real strong apostle was Peter, a fisherman? Or was it because it was out of a fish's mouth Jesus took the coins to pay his taxes? Was it because he fed the multitude with loaves and fishes? I don't know. If you ever find the answer, let me know. I'd like to know. But I can tell you in the New Testament, the symbol is a cross. A cross. You know, uh, the Bible teaches it's appointed unto man once to die. Jesus did not die because he was a man. He reversed cause and effect. He became a man so he could die. Why was that necessary? Do you know that man as man could not save himself? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We couldn't produce such a sacrifice. God as God could not save man. Man sinned. Man had to die. So God became man in Christ in order that he might die in our stead. Now, when you read in Revelation, you read in Ephesians, you read in Peter... Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I say that because long before man was ever created, God provided for his redemption should he ever sin. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now you say, why did he have to do that? Well, I'll tell you one reason. If Adam had a, had, would have sinned before that was stated, 
Adam would have gone straight to whatever place God had prepared for him, you and I wouldn't even be here. But what he did by offering himself before the foundation of the world, he put a floor under Adam and Eve's feet. He gave them a stay of execution and the short time they have in this world was time to get back under the shelter of Calvary. Now I want you to know that's the same way with you and me. We're all under the, uh, under, uh, the sentence of death. If all have sinned, the wages of sin is death. But aren't you glad that God put a floor under our feet and give us these few short years, 70, 80, maybe 90 years to seek shelter under the cross of Calvary? And you know, it bothers me that we, we sort of fritter our life away with no concern about that. That's the most important thing you'll ever do in your life. Prepare to meet your God. The cross coincides with a calendar. I, uh, I like the, the fact that we date our calendar B.C. and A.D. Uh, at the birth of Christ. Now, some historians say there's about a four-year deviation or a differential. I don't know. I, I'm not worried about four years. All I know is every time an atheist or agnostic, or an unbeliever, or a skeptic, signs and dates a document, whether they like it or not, they're testing to the fact that Jesus Christ was, and he is, and he ever will be. <laughs> Some things don't bother you like it does me, I'm glad. <laughs> we date our calendar at the point of his birth, previous and thereafter. Calvary's cross, as I've mentioned, was planned before man ever created, before he created time. Therefore, I want you to note the cross is the point at which the eternal purpose of God coincides with the calendar of man. And God himself, in the calculus of time, determined the day, the place, and the mode of his crucifixion. Evil men didn't do that. This thing wasn't done in a corner. Time and again, they sought to destroy Jesus. And you remember what he said? My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And when this time had come, it said he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. They did not take his life. He voluntarily and vicariously gave his life. He didn't die the death of a disappointed reformer. He didn't die the death of a martyr. He died the death of the Son of God for my sin and for yours. And when he died, you remember those yard birds? I don't know what to call them. Those guys down there laughing at Jesus and jeering. You remember they said, he saved others. He couldn't save himself. Wouldn't you like to just ride it across the eastern sky? It wasn't that he couldn't save himself. He would not save himself because if he would have, you and I would have been forever damned. In fact, when you read the word, he said, I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it up again. It said he could have called a legion of angels. Who crucified him? Some say the Jews did it. Some say the Caiaphas, the priests. Some say the Pilate. They all had their part to play, but I want to tell you something. The fact of the matter 
we all share part of the blame. My sin required his death. And I have to tell you, I don't think of that lightly. Hanging on the cross, his head as high as the heavens, his feet lower than human habitation, born in a little grotto in the hillside, in a little manger where the animals fed out of. There he stands with his arms outstretched on an old rugged cross as though he's beckoning everyone in the universe, whosoever will, come and drink of the water of life freely. It was at the place of the skull that all the forces of hell and earth met in mortal conflict. And the outcome was never in question because I want you to know it was there that Jesus paid full measure the price exacted for my salvation and for your salvation. And when asked, how can a loving God ever send anyone to hell? That's not even the question we ought to be asking. The real question is how can a holy God refrain from sending all of us to hell? The answer is the cross. The cross was where mercy and justice embraced one another. We had broken the law. Justice had to be offered. Jesus came and he satisfied the broken law so that he could continue to be just and also the justifier and offer mercy to you and me. I, I know uh, we all have our way, but I don't, I remember when I first got converted, 58 years ago, there was a gentleman at the altar who told me something. Now, I never had a Bible. It wasn't until the church gave me a little zipper-bound Bible that I had one, and I hid it. And I, after they gave it to me, I read it in a closet with a flashlight. That wasn't the order of our home. We didn't do those things. But before I got the Bible, he had his Bible. And he showed me, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He said, Nelson, I want you in your Bible, which I hadn't yet gotten, I want you to write, God so loved Nelson Perdue that he gave his only begotten son that if he would believe in him, he'd never perish but have everlasting life. You say, why are you saying that? If we're not careful, if I'm not careful, I'll read this Bible with great generalization. My wife and I, when we were dating, never, I never had an automobile, and we never got to do what a lot of kids did. So we met in church. But we wanted to make contact more than just in church, and so we, I had a courier. <laughs> I'd write a letter, and they'd take it to her, and she'd have a letter, and she'd take it, bring it to me. I worked at an old elevator. My dad had left us. He accidentally run over my little five-year-old sister and take her life. And in a family of 12, that was very traumatic. We never understood it. We weren't church-going people and all that. And they, after some months, he couldn't live with himself. He abandoned us. 
For two years, we didn't know where it was. And so I worked in an elevator at night, went to school in the daytime, and I worked uh, when the grain was coming in and when they were harvesting, I'd work long hours. And I would have her love letter. And I'd take it out and read it while I was resting a moment. And then I'd fold it back in and put it in my pocket and break it out and read it again. By the time I got through reading, the folds were so, you know, they just break to pieces. I don't even have one love letter. I hope she still loves me. Thanks you God. <laughs> but the reason I read that letter is because I was in love with the one that wrote it. I watched how she crossed her T and how she dotted her I and all. I don't read this Bible like God read it, wrote it to you. He did. But I read it like he wrote it just to me. It's God's love letter to my soul. And when you begin to realize that he's telling me I died that you might live, it's a real love letter. A real love letter. On the cross, God not only revealed his hatred for sin, he revealed his great love for the sinner of which I was one and so are you I wonder tonight if we could so identify with this cross we would be willing to be internalized it not only is it a cross of history I wasn't there 2000 years ago when Jesus died on the hill far away I wasn't there to hear him cry my God why hast thou forsaken me I wasn't there to hear him cry, it is finished. Laid the capstone on an uttermost salvation. I wasn't there. And it means nothing unless I experience that very crucifixion here. It's not only a terribly shameful death, it must become a spiritual deliverance. And so many times we have almost romanticized the cross. We wear it on chains around our necks and we put on the lapels of our jackets and we grace the edifices of our churches with it. We wreath it with flowers and put it on the gravesides. Nothing wrong with that. Except that let me tell you, I don't think Mary did any of that. Mother Mary did not romanticize the cross anymore and a mother who had a child execute an electric chair would go quickly and get a little miniature electric chair. Not at all. It's what that cross stands for. I must die if I'm to live. We sang it tonight is on the words of the song. You say, how do I die? It's not the death to your self-consciousness. It's the death to your self-centeredness. Until you can say, I'm not running my life. It's God's. And God wants your life. Let me tell you why. He invites you. Maybe that's not the best way to share it. He wants you holy so he can invest you in order to invite them. Did it ever dawn on you God only has one method of winning the loss and it's you? God's method is a man. I think sometimes, Pastor, we get the idea whether well, he's floating around here somewhere and we just sort of tend to go over to Mary and go over to John, go over. For... No, 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 no. 
He works through these vessels. Can he work through your vessel? Or do you still want to control everything? Let us, by fact and in faith, do what Paul did and be crucified with him. And I can tell you one thing. You'll have the same statement, God forbid. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I am crucified unto the world. I want you to stand reverently with me and bow your heads and I'm going to ask uh, Amy if she would just come. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey and where you're walking with God. I don't know. It's none of my business. But I do believe that we don't have these services and God does not lay truth on our heart just to us to sort of accept or reject he does it because he wants us to draw near to him and it may be that God for some reason has put his finger on something or just wants to talk to you you know sometimes we we come with our begging bowls always asking God for something might be nice if we just go tell God how much we love him And if God is speaking to you and you want to just come down and kneel and have a closing prayer tonight, I, I welcome you to come as she plays softly. I haven't been singing, mainly because I don't want to distract what God's trying to do. But I will pray briefly. And if as she prays for a moment or plays for a moment, we're going to ask you to feel free if you'd like to come. Father, these are your people that have taken the time now their busy schedule for the day. Undoubtedly, many are tired and weary, but they've taken time to come to hear your word. You've been so faithful to us, God, and we honor you. If there are those who have need, maybe they just find it easy to slip out real quickly and kneel down here, and maybe you can have a time just sort of wrap your arms around them and love them and show them what your will is even in the days to come. We sang earlier, every hour I need thee, but God, it's almost every moment we need you now. And we ask that you draw on our own heart and we will obey as we come. She plays softly just a moment. Are there others not going to hold? You like to come. Internalize the cross. Don't just look at it as an historical event. Realize it inwardly. It's a radical work that God does. Just come. I'm going to wait just long enough until I feel free to release, but I... I don't feel it yet, but if you'd like to come, just come. Just come. Jesus, draw me near to the cross. Yes, in the cross. Just us. 
Amy, play that one more time, then we'll pray. If you'd like to come, come on this one more verse. Just You say, I've never done that before, preacher. Well, won't do it any younger. <laughs> he waits. He waits. Arms outstretched to receive you. Just come. God bless you. Here's the chorus in the cross, in the cross. This is a very, very personal and sacred time, not only for these around the altar, but you. And you have acknowledged that, I can tell. I've sensed it. I'd like, if you would, just to reverently bow your head and most of all your heart as we pray. Our Father, what a joy it is to know that you have adopted us into your family and we can call you our father and Jesus is our elder brother. We thank you for the spirit of Christ that directs and guides in truth. We cannot tell you, Lord, how we appreciate your death for our life. We were deserving of death. You weren't. But because you weren't, you did, so we won't. How do we praise you for that? And Lord, we want no longer to have any rights to ourselves. We want you to own all rights on us. We don't want to hold a little corner of ourself reserved to us. You will either be the Lord of all or you can't be Lord at all. And so we give you, Lord of all, every crevice and every corner of our life. Lord, we know it's a journey and we know that there's a, a lot of learning and a lot of following. You called us to be learners and we're your disciples and you're going to teach us. We're going to walk in your light and we'll never know all that we need to know, that we like to know until we get to heaven and then we'll have all eternity. But Lord, we want to walk in your light. There's some physically ill here tonight, God, and we pray that a special anointing will be upon them and they'll feel the healing hand of God. There's some struggling with physical healing, but also emotional family stress. We don't know how to handle a lot of things, Jesus. I know that. But we know one who can. And so we want to embrace you today. And if we embrace you, we will internalize the cross that you died on and we'll walk with you.
There's a lot of things, Lord, in the past we can't undo. But we ask that you would just cover them by the blood. And though the devil won't let us forget them, uh, you'll cast them as far as the east is from the west to remember them against us no more. Oh, how we thank you for that. But most of all, God, you want to live in us. As Paul said, not I live, Christ lives in me. And if there's anything within my heart and anything within our heart that would be contrary to your love or that would be of a dual nature to keep us from being single-minded, we ask that the refining fires will go through our heart and illuminate our soul and scatter your life through every part and sanctify the whole. So we offer it to you now. And you said it's by faith. Nothing we can do, not of works, by faith in the true and the living God. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. And we want to walk with you all the way to heaven. Thank you for these that have come and found help and strength. And Lord, just to take time to tell you we love you. Whether we're standing or kneeling, Lord, we love you. Thank you for your love for us. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 God bless you.